we lucked into that fully. Uh, well, yeah, now, yeah. now, now, now I got to hear about this luck because <laughs> I, I don't believe in luck. So let's hear it, about this or, luck. Or, or serendipitously, it all it all lined up for us. But there was there was a couple of things. You know, when we, you know, we had some big battles in this business to win. When we launched in in the U.S. in two thousand and one, it was September first, uh, and then September eleventh happened, which which really Fuck. took the uh, took the wind out of everyone's sails, including our our launch. Then a couple of weeks after that, the uh, the DEA uh, uh, Drug Enforcement Administration in the U.S. declared a war on hemp foods and said hemp was illegal, uh, which was it was not. What? It was not. Uh, but the, you know, the, it, people were confused, and so uh, retailers all of a sudden said, "We're not selling hemp because we could get arrested." What the fuck is so confused? I don't understand how this could be so confusing. There's no cannabinoids that are psychoactive inside hemp. It, it was it was so ripe with the misinformation campaigns back from the day that literally the the U.S. government said hemp and marijuana are both the same thing. But back then, they straight stood up. And even when we took the DEA to court, which is a whole story in itself, they said, you know, hemp and marijuana are the same thing. And so you can't sell it. And, 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 yeah. So this is what I love about Mike. Mike will just drop little snippets like taking the DEA to court and pretend like he's not going to have to get back to that. So, so we're going to get back to that. We are live with Midday Square's Uncensored, the interview series, where we talk about the journey of building all things that is with entrepreneurship and also a brand. And today we have our first guest on the show, Mike Fada, who is the founder of Manitoba Harvest, who I've gotten to know over the last little bit. Um, before we jump into it, you know, Mike, I think we got a lot to talk about here today because this story goes back to 1996, guys. So imagine how much coverage do we have to do. But Mike basically was the founding father of figuring out how to turn hemp seeds into literal gold, selling the company twice, once for $132 million and the second time for $419 million. Am I correct on that, Mike? Yeah, that's correct. Yep. <laughs> so, okay, great. Thanks for so, having me. No, no problem. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it. I mean, like at the end of the day, you know, uh, Mike and I have geeked out many times uh, on the phone and just I'm a big fan of everything he's done. Why don't we start all the way back? So a lot of the people that listen to the Midday Square show um, are people that are actively following the journey of either entrepreneurship, trying to start their own thing, or just fans of watching things grow. And it's very rare that you get to get the attention of someone years after they've been through it. So at Midday Squares, we're only 20 months into what we're doing. I mean, your story goes back to 1996. And so I'd like to focus for the start of the show as to why hemp, why that, why was the moment right? Um, and how did you even stumble your way into it? Because that's a lot of the piece that that people are always looking for is how do I get inspiration to get something going or, or to take something off the ground? And I think that's the the best place to start. Yeah, um, it's a lot clearer now than it was then for me. If I think back on it, because uh, really now it just relates to I found my passion point. Um, then um, it was a big change in my life, and and you know taking my health into my own hands uh, led me to hemp. And, uh, but you know, if I look back, it was really the passion that, uh, 
um, being unhealthy and unhappy and searching for something uh, different than that. And, and when I started my health journey and found hemp um, and the impact that hemp had on my diet and how it made me feel, I knew that if I felt that good, um, other people would want to feel that good. It was, it was kind of that simple. What age was this roughly? Uh, when I was 18, I weighed 300 pounds and then I started my health weight loss journey. And then and when I was 20, uh, so two years in uh, to that, we started the business, started Manitoba Harvest. Wow. So, so what was that discovery point? So you're at this point, obviously, you know, we've heard you speak on other podcasts. You had a McDonald's that was near your spot. That was ultimately a lot of your lunches were happening in the fast food area. What put you on that tilt though to where hemp was even the discovery point? Because I, I would have to imagine in, in the early 90s, this was something that was was not mainstream at all. No, it wasn't mainstream. And part it, it was two parts. One, I I I, uh, I went on the no fat diet. So I started eat. I went from the extreme of eating fast food to eating no fat. Uh, Doctor Nathan Pritikin and his materials of eat no fat and 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 fat free and and you'll lose weight. Uh, uh, which I was losing weight, but I learned the hard way that your body needs fat. The certain types of fat. And uh, and so one of it was one part of it was starving myself of fat the other was uh Udo Erasmus uh who's a fat researcher wrote the book fats that heal fats that kill uh and i read that book and and uh it was the light bulb moment oh yeah okay wait a sec fats are essential uh and you need them and i think uh that, that's what set me on the path and 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 at least off of cuz i was I was doing a bunch of fad dieting, you know, no fat diet was was just one of those. If I look back now, uh, even though that was a, a very mainstream diet and many people were, were following it. But I mean, at the end of the day, I think the, the, the most important though is that you just, you got it done and you got into it. And so, okay, fine. So we discovered that hemp's a big piece. Was there a specific person or was through a book that hemp became uh, part of your life? Well, to the the uh, the book and understanding the information, I think Udo Erasmus wrote it uh, wrote it kind of best and 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 distilled it down of why hemp was the king or the queen of the of the fat kingdom, really, and and uh, the essential fatty acids that it offered. But the other two co-founders of Manitoba Harvest, Alex and uh, and Martin, I had met them, and they they were lobbying the government to legalize hemp. So they they'd been hemp activists for a good six or seven years before I met up with them and then saw the opportunity for commercialization. Wow. Okay. So, so that, that this is, this is the key, right? This is, I guess, where the whole crew starts to form. So this is the part that I'm always the most interested in is, is that leap, right? So it's okay. So Mike's a young lad trying to get, you know, on his path to losing weight. It's happening. It's working. And there's clearly this moment of where it was it obvious that this was a business opportunity or were you at this point getting to know your two co-founders um, on just a pure thing that like, wait a second, this doesn't make sense that this is an illegal crop. And were you, were you attracted to it more from the standpoint of a, like, you know, lobbying for what was right or, or it started to become pretty apparent to you that this this was something that could have value? It was the product first, you know, going from the no fat diet and, 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 um, almost killing myself. So take it to the extreme of like really hurting myself, not eating any fat in my diet. And then meaning like I'd get cut, uh, and then it wouldn't stop bleeding for like a day or something. Cause essential fatty acids is one little thing that they do help your body, you know, your blood clot. And so it was a product first that I, I, uh, when we, when we um, had access to hemp oil and we got our first bottle of hemp oil, I fell so in love with it personally and it made me it started making me feel better. And so I thought there's other people out there in the world that have been listening to the no fat uh, diet kind of um, uh, propaganda 
and are going to change around and need fat in their diet. And, and so I became uh, very passionate about sharing this product. And then the business formed after that. Amazing. And so do you remember the day that you, you, you met your two co-founders or were they independent meetings that kind of happened at different times? Yeah, I, I remember the day because they, they, again, they were in hemp and, and they were hemp activists uh, and, and lobbying for the legalization of hemp. Uh, and also had a hemp store. Uh, and so I, I visited their hemp store where they were selling um, hemp jewelry, you know, some some paraphernalia as well, uh, you know, counterculture stuff, but posters and and hemp wallets and hemp paper. And and, and I thought hemp was cool. Uh, and so the hemp food was just the next part of it. These were like the OGs of the industry, clearly, from what I'm hearing. Like, I mean, the fact that they even had a little shop set up is wild. Yeah, definitely. They were in some of the first in Canada, uh, you know, in, in the early 1990s, having a hemp store. And so, okay, so, so that meeting starts happening. Is it, does it become regular? Is it something that you guys are meeting now once a week? Are you getting together once a month? Does anybody bring up, hey, maybe we should do this on a larger scale? What's that tilt point? Like where, where, where are you at in that journey at this point? Yeah, it was, it was actually uh, two businesses. So <clears throat> I became so passionate about hemp that I started the, the, I started the first business. So uh, Red River Valley Hemp Company was my first business. And Red River Valley, because in Manitoba here, the Red River Valley is where a lot of agriculture happens, rich, rich, fertile soils. So I started Red River Valley Hemp Company and, uh, um, and Martin and Alex were involved. You started independent of those two gentlemen? Yeah, I, I started Red River Valley Hemp Company myself. So I was the sole proprietor of Red River Valley Hemp Company. Uh, Martin and Alex were involved in a in consolidated growers and processors, which was a actually a public traded company at that time, a penny stock company, uh, but was involved in helping uh, legalize hemp and, and getting the first growers uh, united. And so um, Red River Valley Hemp Company, I, I started the Manitoba Harvest uh, trademark and brand and the first bottle of hemp seed oil. And, and then and then the two companies came together and, 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 and from there we're in meetings and said, hey, maybe there's a bigger thing to do together here instead of having two separate entities. Which is an interesting part because I think we speak a, a, a lot about it on the Roundup show that Les, Jake, and I do, which is the idea of just getting going, right? Like, you know, so many people wait for that perfect moment to just get stuff going that sometimes it actually prohibits the momentum from being built. And, you know, the question is, is had you approached those two right away to do that partnership, do you think it would have actually panned out? Or was it the fact that they saw you putting energy into it already um, that a made them to say, okay, this is, this is a person that clearly has drive that clearly wants the same things that we do. And is not just talk, you know, because talk is cheap. Everybody knows that and it's actually getting shit done. Do you think that was pivotal to actually getting that deal done? Yeah, definitely. I, I, you know, I was a young kid, right. I was 20 years old, not educated from a, you know, I didn't, didn't go to school. And so, yeah. And because Martin and Alex were in business already, I think they thought, yeah, I'm not sure, you know? And so when I created the brand and got the product going and got the product on the first couple shelves and then the product started selling, yeah, 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 yeah. then I think, uh, you know, the, the opportunity was seen. I always saw the opportunity because I started it. Uh, but I think Martin and Alex saw uh, saw the bigger opportunity of of getting together and and uh, and maybe you know that that moment of creating the product and getting it on the shelf uh, matched up with their six years or seven years of advocacy work and getting hemp legal. I love it. That's it. You you essentially you made your own faith on on that end. Now, what was and another big piece of that was there was there a large 
part of preparation to launch this business or were you really working on passion and uh, just intuition of like, I just, if I need this, then I, I just fucking know other people need it. Yeah. Yeah. Very much the latter. <laughs> I, I mean, coming from, uh, uh, I think the best thing that happened to me was, uh, not being educated and, and, uh, and dropping out of school when I was 13, because I think if I knew, if I went to business school, I think back, you know, and I knew all the odds of, whoa, 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 time out, time out. This is news that I am figuring out. You dropped out of school period at 13? Yeah, 13. Yeah. So I have two credits in high school uh, and and left high school and started. Did you ever even get the high school diploma or, or you said, fuck it? No, no. Just uh, the uh, life schooling, you know, learned all that I've learned from uh, from the farm, from the street, uh, you know, from professors all over the world, uh, but never from a for- never from a formal education. Amazing. Wow. See, I guys, you have to understand. I'm just learning about this about Mike. I really thought he had only dropped out of university, which is something that we hear, uh, you know, more common in entrepreneurs, but high school I'd never heard of. And I believe, Mike, honestly, that don't even get me fucking started on high school and elementary. I think it's a, the largest disaster of how um, that system is set up. And there's a lot of uh, reform that needs to be done there. So, I mean, it's a perfect testament to the fact that you were able to accomplish what you were able to accomplish without high school, because you uh, to be honest, I don't think I don't think that there was much there to uh, cater to what would have been beneficial to you, anyways. I mean, largely, I feel the same way. I, I mean, I did end up finishing high school, but I mean, wow, it was the worst fucking years of my life in terms of having to figure out how to occupy my brain for eight hours a day or whatever, however long they put me in the dungeon for. Um, but yeah, that that should not be the experience. Amazing. Um, and guys, if you're if you're watching, we're gonna get Mike on the show notes. You got to see this guy. He looks fucking incredible. He's tanned. He's in the best shape I think I've seen. If I could be half his shape when I'm his age, yeah, look at that. <laughs> you, you you just you remind me of like a young like Jean Claude Van Damme. You know, just ready to roundhouse kick someone in the head. I love it. Um, okay, so so you. You trademark the Manitoba Harvest name. Was that one of the first things you did in getting this the, the this engine going? Uh, yeah, well, created the Manitoba Harvest uh, name and brand, and and uh, and got it into stores. We trademarked it after, but uh, but you know, owned the mark from putting it out into market first. Uh, amazing, and uh, yeah, so like that's that's literally uh, what we advocate too on the show is just like guys, just get your shit together put something out there, be passionate about it. Why Manitoba Harvest out of curiosity? I mean, I, I get it, but what w- what was the, what was your thinking at the time? I like, I like getting into that mindset. Yeah. It, 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 it was just natural thought, you know, it was, um, it was about the community. Like my family helped me start Manitoba Harvest. We had Manitoba farmers that were growing the crop. The, uh, we started out of the food development center, which was a, a facility to help bring food products to market, uh, which was a, uh, you know, it's a strength of Manitoba. So, you know, harvesting the best of Manitoba, even though, uh, you know, if we thought of the challenge of explaining what Manitoba is when you go outside of the province or outside of Canada, it, it gets hard. But uh, it is a unique name, and and uh, and it's really it was it was showing our local pride. I love it. So the first product you go to market with is the oils. Yeah, hemp seed oil, cold pressed hemp seed oil. And and at this point in time, is the industry still taboo, or legalization had passed of the grow growing side of it? Yeah, that was the first year. So 1998, uh, hemp was legal, and and we launched the product in in uh, in December of 98. So after the first harvest of crop in in that fall, and 
cold pressed the oil, bottled it up and got it out to uh, the first health food store. What was happening prior to legalization? It was just because I, I mean, hemp was being grown. I know we were using it for rope and a lot of stuff like that was what was happening prior to was it like no Canadian farmer allowed doing it or? Yeah, from from 1938 to 1998, uh, hemp was illegal in Canada to grow. What? But the products were the products were still legal to be sold in Canada. And so that was that was the you could have hemp T-shirts, hemp paper, other hemp fabric and fibers and, and even the oils that you imported from Europe or other countries that they were growing it. So it was legal to sell the product. It just wasn't legal for the farmers to grow the crop, which is fucked when you think about it. Right. It's like it's like let, let's make sure none of the money stays in Canada and only get it uh, sent to exporters so we can resell here. No, that makes that, that that's complete. I didn't even know that. I thought I, number one, I didn't even know um, hemp ever went through this period of time, especially because you're seeing what's happening in the marijuana industry. I always thought that it was just a cross-border issue. I never realized that we had it completely outlawed in Canada. Um, okay. So money, money is the number one thing we always get asked about. It's like, what, how do you even get this thing going at this point in time? Did you have savings? Did you work to, um, you know, get the money going in order to, to launch it? Uh, did you go to friends and family? Take me through what the costs were roughly to start uh, the business at the time and how you even came up with that cash. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so the uh, Red River Valley Hemp Company, the first company that before Manitoba Harvest uh, was formed and, and, and merged, uh, I had $10,000, 5000 in cash that I saved up from working, uh, and I worked construction before we started the business, uh, and a $5,000 loan, uh, and took that $5,000 loan, and in, in 1998, spent $3,500 of it on a computer, because that's what computers cost then to actually get, get in the business yes. of being able to send <laughs> emails and write letters and stuff, uh, and, and use the other product to do the first, uh, the other money to get the first run of product, that first batch of hemp seed oil produced, and, and that was basically the expense, a computer... Uh, which nowadays you could do on your phone. Yeah, uh, and uh, and and uh, and the first uh, thousand bottles of uh, of hemp seed oil. Yeah, yeah, and I believe that I believe many businesses can do it that uh, that way, uh, especially nowadays. A little bit harder then, uh, but uh, yeah, ten thousand dollars, and we had the first product and and uh, sold it to, uh, to to the health food store right across the street from my mom's place. Yeah, so this is an interesting conversation. I think it's worth uh, us having is that you're absolutely right. There's this misconception that's been played in the industry that you need to like you need to have this like larger scale type of production capability early on. Um, when really, I really believe in my heart, having done it at Midday Squares, hearing you saying it, that a large part of businesses, especially in the food, could be tested on a way smaller scale than people think that they could do it. Like, you you, you know, you don't really need mass grocery stores right away. You don't need large production runs. And I, you know, to the point where I'm always, I'm, I find myself a lot in debates these days where I'm trying to say is like, no, 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 no. I'd rather you pay higher amounts of money to get small, very small production runs going and go see if you can even fucking sell the thing and then see if the consumer is willing. Like, don't don't worry about these, especially, you know, co-mans are taking advantage of a lot of um, entrepreneurs that are trying to get in the game. And they're, they're, I was actually at a co-man that it seemed that a big part of their business model was that they knew that every year they were going to bang out 
I don't know, 25, 30 food entrepreneurs for 30 grand on men orders that would never see the light of day, but they were getting their cash, you know, that was, that, it seemed to be part of their business model. Um, and so, do you, I mean, you're, you're in the game heavily still. Are you seeing a lot of that happen too? Yeah. And, and there's lots of different ways to do it. And I think some entrepreneurs do get blind into thinking they got to be big and, and, and big right off the bat when there's, 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 a, there's, there's, there's many different ways to do it. You know, that whole farmer's market uh, start where you make some product and you make a hundred of them and you go out to talk to people and you see what people like and what people don't like about it, but you could do it on a really small scale. And then you learn, and then you could take those insights from what you've learned and apply it to a larger scale, much better bet, so to speak, than to say, Hey, I'm going to go and do it right and do it big right off the bat. And then you can, you could waste all your resources, learn very little or learn too late. Uh, and, and then you're screwed. Yeah, no, completely. And I even have a friend that's going through it. And and a lot of, there's certain things that don't catch on to people. So like I have a friend that's trying to start um, kind of like a different style Nespresso pod business um, than the typical Nespresso pods that are out there. And, and he didn't even realize that, you know, with a few Google searches, there's a lot of manual Nespresso pod filling machines where you can do very small batch production in your home or in a small little kitchen. Um, a lot of people don't make the connection that when you're at a grocery store and you see a beer can or a beautiful glass bottle, that this is something that doesn't necessarily require uh, monster capital investment to get going. Um, as long as you're, you're finding the right people that can supply you that stuff. And I'll never forget, we were having the conversation about the Nespresso pods and I showed him the little like manual Nespresso pod maker and, and his mind was just blowing, you know, it was like, what do you mean? I can make Nespresso pods at home and I don't have to pay fucking 30 grand to a, uh, co-man to make these for me. So I think it's super important for everybody listening that, um, that you could do it on a really small scale. Okay. So we got oils, you're selling it to the place across. What's the next, what's, what's happening next yeah, as yeah. those oils are selling? Yeah. And just let me go one more on that because you're, you're talking about resources that can help entrepreneurs, Nick. And, and I think that Canada, we're so, we're so robust with resources that a lot of people don't know about, especially in the food business. Every province has, you know, the food development center where you can go and rent pieces of equipment. If you, in, if you're not doing it at home and you can't do it at home, you could do very small batch, small run with the support of other food technologists and people that know what they're doing to get your idea out. Canada has is set with those uh, facilities and, and, and resources. And then likely you can get a grant even to support uh, for that first run. So there is the low cost, but uh, uh, quality way to do things. Uh, and Canada is really uh, supportive of that. Oh my God, Canada. I'm out here pitching everybody on coming to Canada. That's like my number thing. I, I mean, I'm sure, listen, the US has got good stuff too, but I mean, I can't believe coming from the software industry, how much support existed in, in Canada. And on top of it, my province, which sounds like your province had a lot of it as well too. Um, the nice thing that I think a lot of people don't realize about when you go the approach that you went or the approach that we went is the serendipity that happens. And I'm sure you have some serendipitous moments of like, once you started getting into that world of where you're calling the food development center, next thing you know, you're speaking to a guy named Jim and Jim has a friend who knows this fucking machine and his friend had, knows a guy that's already done. Like that serendipitousness that continues to steamroll and the creativity and then the products being getting made. Did any of that happen to you? Cause I know a lot of that happened to us. It, 
It was all that. Yeah, I said from my passion, head towards the light, you know, and then you meet great people and you go, hey, well, okay, we got a bottle now. We got oil. We need a label. Oh, yeah. Phone. Exactly. Phone Brian over at the label store and he'll help you out. And then and then you go, well, we need to design the label. Brian's got a friend that can help design the label. And and there's a whole path for an entrepreneur just to to find a trusted resource. I think trusted is the uh, is the key aspect there, which, you know, these these facilities that are that have been around for for 50 years, um, they're trusted, you know, and, yeah. then, and then you can, and then you could use that whole network because some, some entrepreneurs or a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with, with, they can't, they don't have a network. Uh, and, and they say, well, I, I yeah, which is fine. Right. Right. And so you go, you got to build it. How do you build it? Well, you start with one and then, and then go down the, uh, so if you, it, you know, serendipity there or, or just, you know, good, uh, friends building friends, right? Ground and ground and pound. It, it goes back to this. If you so, I, when I read the book, I don't know if you've read the book Sapiens, um, but one of the key components in the book Sapiens is that the reason why the Homo sapien was able to really evolve to the dominant force in the world is our ability to meet quickly, figure out a common ground, and execute. So as a, as a unit. And, and you see it time and time again. Um, I think, you know, when you think about these things, it really is, is like, it's, it's very weird because you go from having no fucking clue who these people are to all of a sudden, like you have these relationships where people are, 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 are helping you out to your point. And so, yeah, I, you know, it's not just serendipity, it's good old ground and pound, but more so is that I think why some of those development centers create beautiful serendipity is that you're already tapping into a network that's been pre-vetted for the entrepreneur almost. So the value proposition there is not to extract money per se from you as the entrepreneur, but rather to guide you and create momentum for you to succeed. Um, And that's why I think the number one fucking thing you can do when you're trying to get stuff going is get in touch with universities uh, chambers of commerce, which is like, especially our generation, my generation is like, when you say the word chamber of commerce, they're like, what, what's a chamber of commerce? You know, it's such an old school thing, but they fucking work. So let's, let's, let's make sure that you guys are actually getting out there and using the resources. Um, so was it, was it instantaneous to you that this this was going to be take you on the path that it took you on or it was a grind at the beginning no it was a grind at the beginning and a grind in the middle and uh, and even a grind towards the end so um you know it's uh, entrepreneurship's not easy uh, but uh, it, it, but it felt it- how long was that early grind because because you're 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 a fucking renegade right like now if you go hemp is is number one it's it's mainstream it's reached complete mainstream availability it's reached complete mainstream understanding you're there and you actually did something that scares the shit out of me by the way which is I'm I'm very scared of going into industries where I'm required to be the educator of the industry and you just took that on your back and went. What so if we go from '96 to when were you holding that industry on your back, trying to convince buyers, people that this was the future? I, the first ten years, you know, it was really ten years. The fir- the first five years, I would say, were almost impossible. If you if you talk about scale, we 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 uh, it took us five years to to make a million dollars in revenue. So wow, you know, it, which was which was kind of step one in proving that this thing was actually real. Um, but those first five years. 
especially just given the time, hemp was just legalized. So everyone thought it was still illegal. Yeah. You know, and we'd go to trade shows and literally people would laugh. They'd walk by and go, no, I'm not into that. You know, you're not into what? This is protein and essential fatty acids. But there was such a stigma of hemp is is marijuana or hemp is cannabis uh, that people were just, you know, it, 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 it was it was impossible on top of starting a new thing. So starting a new thing and it, it is always really, really hard um, when it's. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. I look at you like 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 half half nuts for doing what you did. Oh, fully nuts. No, fully nuts. But I think it, it was just the passion, right? If it wasn't for the health changes yeah. and, and feeling so good and, and, and realizing that, you know, I, I, and because after I made those health changes and I, and I started incorporating hemp into my diet, there was no way that I could think about hemp not being in my diet. So staying in business was also staying in, get, having products in our fridges at home. That was a big driver. No, I, I feel you now. So do you... Do you because the grind is so intense. How old are you at this point? So from from in those first 10 years, if you can give me kind of a rough age standpoint, from what age to what age were those first 10 years in your life? Yeah, started the uh, started the business when I was 20. And so 20 to 30, basically. 20 to 30. And at this point, are you married? Do you have anything going on in that life or or that's all happening while this fucking grind's happening? Um, no, it wasn't. Uh, you know, uh, I was I was single through the majority of that and 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 uh, and uh, really got married when I was um, late 20s, 28. So right at the end of that kind of first 10 years of grind. Right at the end of the 10 years. And so, okay. So what, so, so basically you've got your team, you've got your co-founders. Do you remember what year it was that you finally set with you guys where you're like, Hey, we're joining forces. We're fucking doing this. Yeah, it was, it, it was in, it was, in, it was in rather short order. Uh, so it was in 1998. So the, the makings of Red River Valley Hemp Company and, and and Consolidated Growers and Processors. It was about a six month time that we met uh, and we started meeting, you know, uh, weekly and then started meeting daily and then said, okay, let's do this. So over over three or four month period, uh, we formed and and the and and Manitoba Harvest's uh, parent company is Fresh Hemp Foods. Yep. So the brand, the name, the name is Fresh Hemp Foods, and why? Because we thought, hey, we're going to put out the freshest hemp foods uh, on the planet, and 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 so it was about uh, it was under six months that we uh, that we came together, and then the three of us uh, founded the founded the new entity. And was that a complicated process finding founding new entity, or was were you required to come up with new capital, or did everybody kind of show what they had previous done and kind of just join forces there? Yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, we did we did form a new corporation, and and uh, and and now that we it was not a sole proprietorship, it was a little bit. You know, I, I learned something new because I did all that my uh, myself, and and uh, and we each took basically uh, uh, ten thousand dollars, the ten thousand that I had put in, and 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 Martin and Alex each had ten thousand. So we had thirty thousand into then Fresh Hemp Foods uh, was was the founding before we raised any other money. Amazing, and so okay, great. So hemp oil's rocking. Uh, rocking, we say rocking, but it was a 10 year grind to get rocking. At what point did you start to really say to with your team that this was something that you were ready to start scaling? And what were those steps from? So because, you know, at the end of the day, you're only at, when we're at the point in the story where you're only in, you know, that one main store that you're selling your product to, what did that expansion look like? What did product market fit start to feel like, um, especially, I think it's, this is super important for the audience more than anything because you were in an early industry for us, we were selling chocolate. I mean, it, it wasn't rocket science. We were going to get in uh, product market fit was most probably going to be there because you know, chocolate's chocolate, but, but being a renegade is, is a lot more difficult. What were the signs that can continue to keep you in the game? Like to, to, to know that this was real, especially because it was a slow ramp up. 
Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the one health food store that the first our first health food store that we started selling product to, I was a customer of uh, of, of his of Martin's. The Martin was the owner of the health food store. I was a customer, so he. <laughs> He uh, shout out Mark. Yeah, uh, Canadian Health Food, uh, Canadian Nutrition Center on Henderson Highway uh, in Winnipeg, nineteen ninety eight. Go Martin. Um, he uh, he believed in me after I pestered him for weeks, you know, saying, "Hey, you want to? Yeah, I got this new product, and and I was buying stuff." So after a couple of weeks, he was like, "Okay, you know, give me three bottles of oil. I'll put it on the shelf." And and uh, and then I phoned a couple of my friends and and told them to go buy the product. And I came <laughs> back in. He's like, "Hey, so, some of that's selling, you know." But it was really the um, if I if I say my first aha moment, uh, we did the uh, we did a consumer show, a consumer health show, uh, the Winnipeg Wellness Expo, um, and. And over the three days of the show, um, I sold a hundred bottles of, of of hemp seed oil, and uh, and we had printed out brochures we were giving out to people. But I, I saw the interest there, and people, you know, that whole no fat to the right type of fat diet. Uh, I saw it there, and and thought, okay, well, now we're ready. And and not only did we sell, you know, bring on a hundred new consumers from uh, customers from that show, but also uh, Vita Health, which is uh, the chain of health food stores in Winnipeg, said, hey, we got to carry your products our customers are coming from your booth telling us we got to have this in store so wow. um you know health the consumer shows were were a big part of the ramp up of manitoba harvest and, and we've done you know literally hundreds and hundreds of them over the years to to build the brand so health shows was the, and that's another key thing is the distribution channels you know like distribution channels are fucking everything so you identify the movements happening over You've got, you know that 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 no fat to the right fats movement is starting to come into. Do you go full force on your marketing efforts on this, or were you trying to remain a subset of that? So, you know, to us, we're not necessarily we haven't slapped keto on our brands right now, but we are a subset of that movement, and we do engage with that. What were the clear distribution markers for you at that time? So, let me break it down. You have. Many ways to sell, obviously direct to consumers. One, I don't think it was as prevalent at the time that you were launching the product. Um, you have shows, consumer shows, which we're talking about, which seems that that was a big hit for you. And then you have you know, different types of retailers, health retailers, mainstream retailers, just grocery stores that you know. Was there a model that you started to uh, find that was scalable for you, um, that a channel that just kept on kind of coming back and, and being a winner? Um, you know, it all it all started working when it started working, but I think we built it local first. You know, the local health food stores, um, then the local chain health food stores. And then and I remember the day thinking, okay, we got to get out of Winnipeg and how are we going to do that? And and I and I was like, well, we're just going to, I'm going to dial for dollars. At, back then in 1998, that was 1999 really, um, the Yellow Pages uh, were just coming online. And so I pulled up the Yellow Pages for British Columbia and looked up the health food stores and I remember Nature's Fair being and they're very you know to the, to this day a very popular uh, a chain of health food stores in 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 the interior of BC phoned them up and said hey we got hemp oil uh, I'd love to send you some and and hopefully you'd buy it and and uh, uh, and that was our first. That was our first customer. And and do you remember that call? Do you, do you remember? Were they aware of hemp oil already, or that was again? You're like you got to go through the educational process, or were they aware of consumer demand starting to build? No, no, there was no consumer demand, Nick. There was. We were the only. We were the only company beating the drum for hemp. What they. What I. What I. How I got it into them was. I find that fucking crazy. By the way, I mean, I. I I'm. 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 I have butterflies for you just thinking about how insane that process is. That you had no demand 
design that you literally had to build. Yeah, and we were just try- we were trying to create likeness. So so to the store owner, we said, "Hey, hemp oil is like flaxseed oil, but it's got more essential fatty acids." And actually, a lot of people prefer the taste of hemp over flax. Just that simple soundbite um, what garnered some interest, and so. Uh, Roland and shout out to Roland at Nature's Fair uh, said, "Sounds good. Send me six bottles of of hemp oil and we'll try it out." And uh, and then and then uh, you know we sold them those first six bottles. But what what I realized after that was the interest in hemp uh, was larger outside of Manitoba uh, with these retailers. Partly because their store, I'm sure, traffic in their store, maybe the West Coast, the health mentality was higher. But it started working outside of Manitoba, uh, and so we put more effort there. Which is so like, honestly, that piece is so interesting because, you know, sometimes we get stuck in our bubbles that it's just like you once you start going out, you start realizing, oh, my God, there's people out here that actually know what the hell I'm talking about. I want to touch on one little point, though. Buyers get a bad fucking rap. And here's why I believe buyers. And I want your opinion. I think I, I mean, I really think it comes down to. I'm hearing you speak now and I'm like, you know what? This really does reinforce. I believe if you have a genuinely new product that is not a me too product meaning if you're just going to call buyers to try to sell them on commodity and price per se and you're not bringing anything new to the market and you're like hey you know you're selling coca-cola cans i can make you know jay-z coca-cola with you know at the same price point but who needs more coca-cola let's call it and shout out to coca-cola i love you guys i'm not i'm not shitting on you but the point I'm trying to make is that you always hear that buyers are like these impossible beasts and they're mean and they're this, but I've felt so far, and it seems like that when you when you truthfully come with a novel uh, idea that is fresh, new, and 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 adding to the growth of the market, it's not as hard as people think it is. You, you yeah, you, you, your point there, Nick. If if it's innovative, if it's truly unique and new to the market, then then um, buyers, good buyers, are, are on the lookout for that. But if you're in a Me Too product, or 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 it, you're the third one or the fifth one launching the coconut oil or cold brew coffee, or you know every category gets that, uh, uh, it's a lot harder. Buyers are like, no thanks, we already have that, or we already have a couple of those. But if it's truly unique and innovative and it's not out there before, good buyers they they get they get paid. Their job is to look for the new stuff and and bring it in for their, especially in the especially in the independent uh, channel and and health food store channel. This is what i'm fucking saying guys it's at uh, ladies guys whoever listens at the end of the day that is the point is that listen i think there's business to be had everywhere and i'm not and i'm not going to say that um you know that you can't necessarily be a third or fourth to the market but that's not what i'm here to condone what i'm here to say is that i genuinely believe that your best path to success in anything is to truthfully be first second you know, to really bringing something unique to the market, your life will just be so much easier for it. And 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 Mike's a, a testament to that. The, you know, the guy literally had to invent a market by himself and, and was still able to get the attention of buyers. So I don't want to hear any more fucking excuses that you can't do it. Um, okay, so so moving on, at what, at what stage of the game did it become apparent that it was time to move on from oil? Well, we, you know, we, hemp oil was the first product, but we were, we instantly started innovating and, and doing research on, um, other products. And so, um, our second product, which. Cause you're fully vertical, right? At this point, you're, you're literally doing the crops, the processing, everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, we, um, 
we raised our, our first money that we raised with thirty thousand dollars, and we bought an oil press uh, and started pressing oil. But right after that, we were like, okay, what else can we create? Because we have hemp seed from the farmer, uh, and we have a we have a consumer base now, uh, small but growing. And and uh, and and what other products would they be interested in buying? Uh, or more so, you know, ha, ha, what other what other products do we want in our own fridges? Which is what led to shelled hemp seed or hemp hearts and, and, and the other innovations. But it was in, it was in rapid order. We, we, we were, you know, from 1998, when we launched, we, we, with hemp oil, 1999, we launched shelled hemp seeds. And then we started playing with other products after that. So every, every year or, or whenever we were ready to launch a new product, we, we, uh, we, we did bring new things to market. I think this is super interesting because it's so rare that you, I get to meet people that have been in the farming process. This is something that's like super interesting for me, um, is, were you, what is that process like? Great. You have a crop you want to grow. Are you, are you out there pitching? Like, is it, you literally have to go pitch farmers Yeah. to grow these the, things? Or yeah. Is, there, the, you know, there's basically, it was three businesses in, in, in one with Manitoba Harvest. One aspect of the, the whole farming operations. And now it's, you know, obviously very, very large because there's a lot of people and a lot of farmers involved. But back then it was um, teaching the farmer, the one farmer, our first farmer, how to grow the crop. Uh, because they didn't know. Because what was that farmer's name? Uh, Art. Were- yeah, Art. Art Potaroka. Shout out to Art. And and Art is uh, he, he's 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 uh, eighty now. And uh, uh, but he I he believed that. in hemp. Art, the godfather of hemp farming. Could you believe that we got the godfather over here? Let's go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so you know, he had, he had to teach the uh, teach the farmer uh, how to you know how to be successful with the crop. So, and we were trying to figure that out at the same time. And uh, uh, but there is a whole. You- and you are you kind of laying out the monetization plan for it? So it's like, Art, here's the game plan. We're gonna grow this shit over here. This is how much we're gonna be able to buy it from you. We think this is gonna be more competitive than some of the crops you're already growing. Exactly. Yeah. And so we we likened it, uh, you know, very much like we likened it to the, on the consumer level of flaxseed and. And flaxseed oil, we took that to, to to the farm as well, and said, "Hey, if you grew flaxseed or one of these other essential fatty acid seeds, hemp is like that, but you can make more money, fifty cents a pound for for the crop that you grow, and and uh, here's how much you should be able to harvest off an acre, um, and, you know, and here's the, here's what we need from uh, from from the quality of the product, and you know, trying to teach them uh, and learn ourselves until we." We were so good at it that we could write the handbook, right? The the uh, the, the the manual, and uh, and and really help to educate farmers and, and and lock down all those specifics of how to how to replicate the the crop every single time the same. Amazing, and and is there contracts in place that guarantee like you're the buyer? Is that how does that work? Is or are they just free to sell it wherever? No, we, one of the strengths for 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 Manitoba Harvest is, was uh, it was all closed loop contracts. So we. We sold the genetics. Uh, we sold the hemp seed to the uh, to the farmer. We helped them to be successful growing the crop and harvesting the crop, and then we and then we had a contract to buy back that specific amount of pounds uh, from the farmer. So they couldn't sell it to to others. They they had to sell it back to uh, to Manitoba Harvest, which was one of our moats, I guess. If you if fucking you say, right, that's a moat. Uh, other 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 companies coming in competing with us. Yeah, that's like that would be like us getting to own our almond supply, you know, farms and having the full the full loop on it. It's incredible. Um, okay, so we're at oils, cold press. Obviously, it makes a lot of sense, right? You have all this other great jazz that's coming out of the. Um, out of the out of the plant, so it's just like you know, it just makes a lot of sense that you have to to, to, to go for it. Um, let's fast forward into 
the first major round of I don't want to use round because uh, I'm not insinuating that you had to raise money, but where you had to put together that first major processing plant. How far is that from 96? Uh, well, we, you know, we operated out of the food development center for uh, three and a half years, um, four years almost. So from 1998 to 2002. Uh, and then in 2002, we built our first what I would call pilot scale facility is it was in, in, in terms of manufacturing, it was small, like, uh, you know, 1500 square feet of, of manufacturing. Um, and so that was the first time that we, I feel like, I feel like that's always the go-to even us was 1500 too. I, I feel like 50, that that's the perfect. If you're listening, try to cram whatever you're doing into 1500 square feet. I don't know. It just seems to be the magic number. Yeah. Yeah. In a strip mall, you know, so we knew it was, uh, it, it couldn't, it, it it, it wasn't you did it in a strip mall yeah it was in it was in an industrial uh, strip mall so we we started out with one unit there and then luckily for us over the th four or five years that we were there we, we when you say unit a cold press right that was your first own cold press or yeah it it, it both we were we were cold pressing hemp seed oil and we were also shelling the hemp seed at that time uh, when we when we got into that uh, facility so there's two main uh, there was there was two main kind of production uh, uh, processes and then, and then as well, packaging, uh, that was happening there. And packaging though, you were just, you were buying your packaging and you were just doing the packing yourself in there, right? Correct. You weren't actually printing yeah, the rolls. Yeah. Right? Did you ever get to that point where you were printing your own packaging out of curiosity? Um, no, only, you know, no, not, we, we always had the packaging suppliers, uh, if anything, little, you know, some of our bulk items that, uh, that used a more simple label, we'd, we'd print those simple labels in house, but, uh, no, we always, uh, we're fortunate and, and Manitoba is a great place, but you know, uh, for, for for people that make bottles and jars and bags and all the different types of food packaging that, uh, that, that you need. So we're, we're fortunate for that. Amazing. 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 What was the moment in time that, that you felt that this was, was starting to grow into something a lot bigger than you imagined? Like, I mean, I, there's no doubt as an entrepreneur, you always believe. So I'm not insinuating that you didn't believe, but there's always that moment of where that light starts to creep through. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, as an, do you remember it? Is as, there, a, no, it's, it's, it's different levels of bright. If I look at that, cause there, you know, it was, yeah, but let's talk about the first level of bright. Yeah. The first level of bright was, uh, was actually in, uh, was in 2002, uh, when we got uh, a listing in whole foods nationally in the U S uh, for hemp oil. Wow. See, I didn't know that you did you. Yeah. That's a, Amazing. Yeah, that that was a and and we lucked into that. We lucked into that fully. Uh, well, yeah, now yeah. now 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 I got to hear about this luck because I, I, I don't believe in luck. So let's hear about this or, luck. Or 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 serendipitously, it all it all lined up for us. But there was there was a couple of things. You know, when we you know we had some big battles in this business to win. When we launched in in the U.S. in two thousand and one, it was September first, uh, and then September eleventh happened, which which really Fuck. took the uh, took the wind out of everyone's sails, including our our launch. Then a couple of weeks after that, the uh, the DEA uh, uh, Drug Enforcement Administration in the U.S. declared a war on hemp foods and said hemp was illegal, uh, which was it was not. What? 
it was not, uh, but you know, they, it, people were confused. And so uh, retailers all of a sudden said, we're not selling hemp because we could get arrested. What the fuck is so confused? I don't understand how this could be so confusing. There's no cannabinoids that are psychoactive inside hemp. I don't understand. Is it just because they, they, they felt that they didn't have the technology at the time to distinguish between true marijuana and, and THC and uh, hemp? So they just said, fuck it. It, it was it was so ripe with the misinformation campaigns back from the day that literally the U.S. government said hemp and marijuana are both the same thing. Hemp is the hemp is the seed of the plant and marijuana is the flower that you smoke, which we nowadays we all know that's totally that's that's totally yeah. false. And even the U.S. government now and, and other governments will admit that's not the case. Hemp and marijuana are both different different parts of a different species in the cannabis plant where hemp doesn't have any THC. It doesn't have any psychoactive component to it. But back then they straight stood up. And even when we took the DEA to court, which is a whole story in itself, they said, you know, hemp and marijuana are the same thing. And so you can't sell it. And, 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 and <laughs> so this is what I love about Mike. Mike will just drop little snippets, like taking the DEA to court and pretend like he's not going to have to get back to that. So, so <laughs> we're going to get back to that. Okay. So, all right. So you're, 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 you're in the whirlwinds. You're, you're going head on. Yeah. And so we were still going down into the U.S. I remember we were at the Natural Products Expo uh, trade show, uh, Expo East, that, that was happening at that time. Um, the world was falling apart because the DEA was said, like, hemp's illegal and uh, and retailers were just stopping carrying the products and UNFI. What are you saying when you're crossing the border? Are you even talking about your your who you are, what you're doing? Or you're just like, hey, I'm just heading out to the food show. You know, it was it was an interesting times at, at customs. I used to back before, before right around that time, there wasn't a, a food bioterrorism security act that the U.S. has. So you used to be able to travel with product when you flew, and now you have to do wow. it all through commercial broker uh, clearance. So I yeah, guys, I'm a baby in this industry. So what Mike is saying, I've never even had to. So to me, it's just like it's a no fly zone to bring our products. We always have to send it on its own. Yeah, back in the day, I'd roll up at the airport with with a flight with a box of uh, of product samples and say, "I'm going to a trade show," and I got all my products. and And uh, and I, I spent uh, many times in uh, secondary screening and customs, looking through each box, even actually opening up some of the products and testing it for THC right there. And they were like, "No, this is uh, this is hemp, and we'll let you go." And you know, nowadays you can't carry any, you know can't carry any of those products. But you know, going down to uh, the natural products show and uh, and the world was falling apart, and actually Whole Foods Whole Foods, shout out to Whole Foods because Whole Foods was the only retailer in the U.S. that said, we don't believe this. Hemp is different than marijuana. We're not listening to the DEA's uh, threats that we have to take the product off the shelf. Uh, but the other the other manufacturer, the U.S. manufacturer, which was... See, that's the difference. I just want to make a point. That's the difference when the founder was still the CEO. That's the... Because that guy was a real OG in the scene. He knew it. He came from, from, from where Whole Foods was launched. These guys were like... And girls were the fucking uh, founding fathers of this industry. So, you know, now that you're saying it, I'm like, yeah, that's that's the Whole Foods I know. Yeah, and John Mackey, you know, shout out to John Mackey for sure. For sure, he was he 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 wanted to stand up for what was right and in 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 health and natural foods and hemp was part of that. So they didn't back down. Uh, but their supplier at that time, uh, Spectrum, uh, was selling a hemp seed oil couldn't ship anymore. They said we're going to stop producing it. And so Whole Foods said, "Okay, 
Well, they're already selling a hemp oil, uh, and and gave Manitoba Harvest the uh, the, the the shot and said we, we just put we replaced Spectrum in 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 nationally with Manitoba Harvest hemp oil in every region, and and that was you know you call it that first light bulb moment or or the turn up the juice and it's sports, man. I I know it's like. I get I get flack all the time because I'm I'm always comparing uh, this game to sports, but it really is. I just don't know how to say it any other way. You're sitting on the fucking bench. You're just been drafted into the league. You're just dying to get on the court and just do anything. And the thing is, is that when the call happens, you better be fucking ready because when you're going to go on the court, you got to drain the three, you got to score the goal, you got to do whatever, you just got to win. And so it's a perfect example of being ready. You know, you're sitting there in the pocket, Whole Foods calls you up and I guess the rest is history, right? From the Whole Foods standpoint, from the Whole Foods standpoint. Yeah. From there, I I, I said, hey, I got to go everywhere. There's a Whole Foods. And guess what? There's a lot of Whole Foods in the US. (laughs) So it had me traveling abroad. Uh, But uh, yeah, you, you take that one lead, that one opportunity that one shot and you just go all into it and, and and very much we did and so take me through it now you're like is, is it up to you to get it all listed across whole foods are you banging like they're like hey we're gonna get you in the system but you go figure out all the stores or they put you in the stores and now it was your job to make sure that you were selling that shit in the stores yeah yeah thankfully and, and it was it was maybe it was a little easier at that time but they they put us they replaced the product in, in with mantle harvest and so they put us into all the stores, uh, and uh, and then and then from there was the you know cha- as you know challenge number one get on the shelf challenge number two get off the shelf and so it, it was uh, I took it on as my role to make sure that the, those stores were selling product and and for that to happen a lot of education was how's there. your relationship with your founders throughout this whole period um, you know we we uh, there, there was. There was moments where it was uh, um, the three musketeers and we were all doing our part, uh, different aspects of the business. Uh, Martin was focused more on operations. Uh, I, I, I was running the business, but also focused on on uh, on growing and, and then started to focus on the U.S. growth. Uh, and Alex was marketing and selling in Canada. So we, we were dividing and conquering. Uh, but as the business grew um, and our and our roles changed, that, that more conflict came in uh, and, and relationship challenge came in. I think that and, and- I mean, you, you're sitting here looking back on the whole aspect. And I think this is the number one thing um, that is not spoken about. Um, and, and I'm really making it my goal because in my last partnership, I, I had four partners. And when things were great, everything was great. And when things were shit, things were really shit. The problem is every time that the shitness happened, uh, scar tissue was built and we weren't dealing with the scar tissue being built. And so resentment started to be built. Um I think it's one of the number one things that that is never spoken about to founders of how important that uh, that that relationship is in terms of communication. Do you think that most of the stuff that was built between you as founders was could have been overcome by a stronger, simpler um, conversations that necessarily aren't the hard conversations, more hard conversations amongst each other? Maybe, maybe I, I, you know, I actually like, I like what, how Midday Squares does it and both from a transparency, but you guys are, are all very similar in family, obviously. So you could talk it out. Um, you know, Martin and Alex and I, the difference was Martin and Alex are about 10 years older than I. Uh, and so I was the young gun coming in and, and, uh, with a lot of energy and, and, uh, I was the same, by the way, my last, know, I think so, that, that added some challenge to my last partnership was the same. I was, I was 10 years younger than everybody. It made it very difficult at times. So I can, I can really get to that just out of pure energy differences. 
that's really what it comes down to. Just like those energy differences sometimes could really just uh, uh, put a damper in things. Over time, were you were you able to stay pretty aligned all the way till the end? Um, well, you know, the, the uh, Martin and Alex both left the business uh, before, call it the end, before uh, before the uh, the second sale, uh, even before the first, uh, even before the first sale. So, um, but you know, for the for the first uh, ten years, uh, all three of us were in the business and and growing the business. I guess from really zero to about. Ten million dollars in revenue. Uh, we were all together, and then from there, the uh, from the zero tax. to ten, you said. Yeah, from zero to ten. Yeah. Okay, so let's leave the listeners with just this one piece before we move on. What, looking back, what do you think is the most important for somebody about to get into partnership with people? Because um, a lot of people do it blindly. It's like, hey, you know, we just want to do something. Let's just do it. What do you? What? What would you say the most important? thing is if we can distill it down to two things let's call it i mean i, I think the uh to make sure that the core values are are the same or similar at least what you believe in personally uh, you can align to that uh would be the number one and number two that that you can have open uh conversation you know there's no doubt that they're, they're, the hard conversations are going to arise that's the number one thing that i think is super important like i think what mike and i are trying to condone here is that the right partnership doesn't look conflict free. It just means that when there's conflict that you're able to actually get somewhere and move forward without animosity. That's my description of it. Um, and so, yeah, be very diligent before you get into uh, business with people because it, it, it really is as important as a marriage. And so don't, don't just do it lightly. All right. So, you know, 10 million takes a decade you would say to do, uh, sorry, uh, your zero to 10 million happened over 15 years, roughly or 10, 10, 10 years. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, we, uh, the first, the first, it took five years to go to, to generate the first million dollars in sales. And then from years five to 10, we went from a million to 10 million in sales. Amazing. 10 million. Take me through that moment. Cause that's a big fucking number as a company to get to. Like, it's like, it, where are you at that stage of the game? So your products all in Whole Foods? Are is, is it really just U.S. is Whole Foods, Canada's national? Take me through just so we're setting the stage for where you're at in that part of the game. Yeah, yeah. In in uh, in that 10 million in sales, we were. It was probably at that time 50 50 in Canada and the U.S. So in Canada, we were we were already selling throughout the. Throughout not only the uh, uh, health food stores but also the main groceries, so in Loblaws, in Sobeys, in in uh, in Safeway, in Metro, um, and then in the U.S. we were uh, just in natural foods, so in Whole Foods um, and 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 the co-ops and the other key natural foods accounts. Mike Fada at this point in time, full of energy. Clearly, you're not sitting there and patting yourself on the back. What? What's that explode? I mean, we got we, we, you take this company to serious, serious numbers. What is the switch up strategy at ten million? Because it sounds like the the original founders leave at this point, right? Um, one of the founders, yeah, Martin left uh, the business at that time um, um, for family reasons, really, and and. Uh, and um, and Alex was still involved, but uh, he moved more to a uh, to to contract uh, uh, from full time, and um, and I guess you know 
serendipity or uh, just the time uh, uh, timing was right. But uh, Costco came a calling, and and that was a that was the next kind of uh, brightness, uh, bright spot for the uh, for the business. So Costco comes around, and you're and you're just like, I mean, Costco's a beast. Yeah, and there was a couple of things that happened actually. If you, if you say that, that, that a couple uh, yeah, things. exactly. Before we get into that piece, I'm curious about your your executive team. What does that look like right now? So so you're leading the charge as CEO. Are you bringing on other people to help you be at at that table at the executive level yet? Um, how are you doing on finances? Are you still self funded? Are you having backings from? government organizations, banks, like where, where are you at in this whole game? And I'm going to continue to refer to it as a game because I really fucking believe it's a game. Yeah, I, I, I like game. Games you, uh, you, you games have players you set up to win. And I, they're I, intended I, to be know, fun. I, I think to set the stage for, for, for two, in 2008, that 10 years in, we did 10 million bucks in sales. We thought it was time to, to really get serious about the business uh, and the time was right. Uh, and so we raised a significant amount of capital. At that time, it was, it was two and a half million dollars that we raised. And it was our first venture capital, our first institutional investor um, that came into the business and, and properly funded the business, which then gave me the ability to, to, to really invest in the, in the management team and, and, and make other investments, the next, next level investments for growth. And what were those next level investments for you? Because I, I know now that I, I got to speak to you, it seems like you're pretty big on, on team and the right people doing the right thing at the right time. Do you remember who your, your first key recruit was? That that fucking like that that first like player that you want to bring onto the team, yeah, or first big player that you brought onto the team. Who was that? One of the first game changers was uh, was Tom Greaves uh, joined the team as our as our plant manager uh, and then became our director of operations. But really, um, and you have to remember in hemp. A lot of people were scared about this business, Nick. Even even when it was doing well, they were like, "Hey, I don't want to put hemp on my resume. Oh. That sounds a little too weird for the rest of my life." You know, I find that so whacked to me. I find that so whacked because I just I'm just unfor- I didn't live through that prohibition period. So yeah. <laughs> you know, it's that's it's crazy. It's crazy. So he- yeah, I'm, uh, you know, e- even even e- even being a ten million dollar business, I think people thought mm, I'm not sure if I want to associate with this. But uh, but Tom was one of those uh, game changers that he he had a lot of experience in in operations and and uh, and working equipment and and uh, and bringing professionalism to scheduling and and uh, and really just getting the job done, uh, which allowed us to expand because you know we were. When we were growing so fast, um, you know, we we had problems with uh, getting enough customers, and then we had enough problem. Then we had problems supplying those customers that we had, and it, it was it was always that kind of vicious cycle that we had to make sure that we had enough seed from the farm, we had enough production capacity in our facility, and then we had enough customers to buy all that product. And and, and it's a big balancing act, actually, uh, uh, especially north of ten million dollars. Yeah, honestly, at the it's it, it's equivalent. My brother's a pilot, and we talk about this all the time. A recreational pilot. Um, it's equivalent to flying in fog all the time, in my opinion. Uh, is you just you're constantly you're never gonna have twenty twenty vision. A lot of people think that you're at some point there's this magical day where twenty twenty vision appears, but there there just really is never twenty twenty vision. It's it's consistent to your a balancing act of all that shit. So Costco comes in. That is a uh, that where what was that called? What did they want? They wanted the proteins. They wanted the the oil. They wanted the whole line. No, well, it, it, well, Costco came calling and 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 they wanted us to uh, they wanted us to try hemp milk. Hemp milk was our f- was our fourth product, and we had hemp milk at that at that time. They wanted to they thought hemp milk was the next uh, biggest uh, non dairy beverage. 
uh, and wanted to test uh, uh, hemp milk. And I said we would only test hemp milk uh, if we got to test hemp hearts at the same time. And 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 we had just gone through a full rebranding of of from uh, calling you know hemp hearts shelled hemp seeds uh, into creating the hemp heart brand, uh, which I knew was going to be a game changer because hemp hearts rang off people's tongues and and people you know related hemp hearts to 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 a healthy lifestyle and it was it was really catchy so how the fuck uh, could you not hemp hearts you just you did they sound like cute little things that you want to scratch the bottom of their chins like it just uh yeah just makes exactly you know come here little hemp hearts you know yeah, instead of shelled hemp seeds, people were like shelled hemp seeds. What's that? And we thought at that time shelled hemp seeds, you know, were like a or like a hulled hemp seed was like a hulled sunflower seed, you know, which was which was you know it was unique and it innovative. It just goes to show you how fucking important verbiage is. Like just the way you call things, the names. I mean, you know, I know there's this broad thing called marketing. I don't like using the word marketing. I just had a debate about this on the last show with Les and Jake. It, this is the pieces that it comes down to is the referral, the the perception of things. So ultimately, at this point, was your brand looking like the current brand that's on shelves now or no? Not yet. It ju- that that's when it just it just changed. So it, yeah. So you had just done that rebrand to like yeah, which is our, well, I'll call it our mainstream moment. You know, because even though we were we were in uh, large grocery retailers that that was the uh, that that was the turning point for the brand. Oh yeah, I mean I I mean no 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 offense to the old style of the brand, but when I when I saw that difference, I mean because you have to understand, I only learned about Manitoba Harvest as the new brand. And number one, I I'm, I'm, I can't even believe we're having this conversation today because I've, I've been a big purchaser of uh, of um, Manitoba Harvest pretty much my whole my whole later twenties and on. Um, when we first discovered, my mom was the first one to bring it home, probably from fucking Costco. If we come back to think about it, but um, the brand is so wholesome. It's so like it takes everything that people were branding hemp as prior and turns it into this like super relatable, you know, your uncle has a farm and you want to go hang and have fucking croissants and coffee in the morning and, uh, and just run through the park, you know, like that's, that's, so I agree. That definitely is your mainstream moment. Uh, was it just on a tear after that? And did hemp hearts win? Was your hypothesis right? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, you know, hemp hearts did become the the uh, the lead horse. Uh, even though we started with hemp oil, uh, hemp hearts w- became the engine, the growth engine of the business. And 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 Costco uh, was that mainstream turning point where, when we got listing in Costco Canada, Western Canada, uh, uh, at first. Um, Almost every new consumer that we talked to said, "Hey, I saw it at Costco. I tried it at a demo at Costco." And so Costco became this big sampling uh, and, and discovery moment for consumers that hadn't seen it years before that in Loblaws and Sobeys and the, even the other major uh, grocery stores. And so, did you do their uh, their their roadshow experience? Did you do like full throttle the roadshow experience, or they because you were had become a vendor, they were just allowing you guys to do demoing? No, we had we. We, we, so we did a roadshow. When they called originally, they said, "Hey, we want you to roadshow hemp milk." And uh, and 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 our sales manager said, "Hey, Costco called and they and they wanted us to roadshow hemp milk." And I said, "Only, only if we can if we can do hemp hearts at the same time." Uh, and they gave us the they they gave us that opportunity. And so we did a roadshow with hemp milk and hemp hearts. 
Uh, and we we sold. And for everybody know, listening, the roadshow means that you're only on sale while you're demoing, correct? Like they didn't actually put you on the shelves yet. They just yeah. It's 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 Costco consignment for seven days. We 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 went in there with a couple pallets of product, and we we demoed from open to close, and we saw how much product can we sell in in seven days, and then they use that to evaluate: Are you going to get a listing? And they're going to buy a product or or not? Amazing! Wow! 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 And so, so I, the ter- I so I, I so so I knew, and hemp milk didn't do so well in that roadshow, uh, because hemp you know non dairy beverage wasn't even that big at that in, in, in two thousand and eight as it is nowadays, and hemp was it was what still a very small like? part of non dairy beverage. It, but hemp, does it taste what I think it would taste like, or it tastes, it tastes like a lot parts. better than yeah, I think it would taste? Yeah, yeah, no, it tastes it tastes well, and you can you can get you know funny enough, Mantle Harvest just launched relaunched hemp milk uh, this year, and so you can get. You can get the hemp milk in in Canada and the U.S. Uh, under under the Manitoba Harvest brand. Um, so uh, it tastes like hemp hearts. It has a nice nutty flavor, and it's white and creamy, and uh, it's 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 very competitive to other the other non dairy uh, uh, milks. It's just then it, it it wasn't big enough. It wasn't well known yet, but uh, but hemp hearts were uh, did very very well at that roadshow, and uh, and um, and I I knew then from selling. What was the pitch? Give me the pitch. I need to know the pitch. So you're there. Hey, I'm loving these hemp hearts. What's the pitch? How are we selling it to for me to use at home? Yeah, well, it used to be a lot more complicated, Nick. But from some great marketing people that I that I involved in my life, uh, it came down to hemp hearts are taste good, they're easy to use, and they're good for you. Uh, and then, and then you could expand on that. Taste good, have a nice nutty flavor, uh, easy to use. Sprinkle it on salad and cereal, and good for you. Plant-based protein and essential fatty acids. Bam, boom. That's Mike it. fucking you know. drop. And- <laughs> um, okay, so I, you know, we're coming to the the, the later part of the show, and I want to make sure we because there's two juicy pieces here, and I really want to make sure we get that. Which is, you're on this tear. This terror is happening. People are clearly joining the team. More, more and more people are joining the team. I don't think you do any other raises past your first raise, if I'm correct, right? Uh, we no, we did. So you know, if if we look at just the straight capitalization of the business, there was the uh, the three founders put in uh, uh, dollars, and then and then we uh, we raised some from friends and family. And then we raised institutional money from Avrio Ventures, and then we we did one more we did one more raise. That was the two and a half million raise, the first institutional one, correct? Yeah, the first yeah the first institutional money was two and a half million, and then, and then we raised another three and a half million that was Avrio Ventures and and then White Road. So shout out to to Cliff Bar and the Cliff Family Fund uh, with White Road Ventures, also uh, uh, White Road Investments, also. I didn't know you had the Cliff the 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 the, the Cliff. Uh, did you ever get to meet Louis? I, I, did I no. It's, Erickson, what's his first name? Sorry again. Yeah, Gary. Yeah, Gary and Kit. Yeah, Gary. Gary yeah, Why did Gary I say Louis? Did you ever get to meet Gary? Yeah, yeah. Had had the uh, have had a good uh, you know been felt very fortunate to uh, to to become friends with uh, Gary and Kit, and they've really uh, uh, besides making an investment in the company, opened up Cliff Bar uh, and, and literally their homes to uh, to Mantle Harvest and other other companies that they invested in. So great people, uh, growing obviously a great business, and uh, and we're very supportive to uh, to our entrepreneurs entrepreneurial ventures yeah i've always heard he's like just a really epic dude and it goes to the point guys if you cannot sleep on your fucking investors couches 
or anybody that you're doing business with, if you can't sleep in their house, their couches, their homes, then don't do business with them. I remember my first time meeting Mike, I was saying I want to go hang at his place because at the end of the day, that is the only time you're going to actually understand what this relationship really is. Um, and I just think it's super important to have that type of relationship with anybody that you're going to be. If you're fortunate enough, if really your back's in a corner, hey, that's that's a different story. But if you if you can really take time and get the right people around the table, it's the it's the only way to do it. So okay, so you do that second raise, and then that's the last raise before you go on to sell the company the first time, correct? Right. Yeah. We uh, we were. Uh, it took us say about 13 years to become uh, solidly profitable, and then from there, the uh, the profits really drove the business. Amazing. And then what were your winners from that Costco moment all the way to the selling of the business the first time? Um, Was it hemp parts the whole way or was hemp protein a big piece of that too once it was introduced? You know, it was... it was hemp hearts uh, for sure. The, we we created uh, you know we were successful in the other products like hemp protein and and uh, and then even created uh, uh, more ready to eat products the granola and the bars. But hemp hearts are were 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 the lion's share. This is something we got to tell the the, the the show listeners for everybody listening. Manitoba Harvest was the actual hemp protein that Midday Squares used in our formulation. So we. Fully, we're going to retail to buy Manitoba Harvest, a 50-50 product, um, and and we use it fully in our product. And, and that's why, I, I mean, I had known the product uh, significantly, but Manitoba Harvest literally was uh, all 86 trials that Midday Squares Fudgia is contain Manitoba Harvest in it. So, fun fact. So, dr- hemp parts basically drive this whole thing forward. What does your executive team start to shape out to? You have a CEO in place, CEO in place, CFO in place uh, going into your sale or or no? Uh, no I was chairman of the board and CEO, um, but we had a full uh, senior management team. So a vice president of marketing, vice president of sales, vice president of finance, vice president of, uh, of operations. Were you hands on on building that team? Yeah, I, it, it was it was a big uh, you know a big part of my my management role was to build the team and to make sure the team had uh, clear direction and, and mandate uh, against our our mission and vision and, and had the KPIs uh, to know if they were being successful with their with their activities. So recruitment and 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 really making sure the management team was aligned was a, was a big part of my job. And was it weird to not be in the gritty anymore? Did it take a bit of adjustment? Uh, there's a grieving process for when after leaving management of the business, but I was also uh, a little bit burnt, you know, from 20 years of working 70, 80 hour, sometimes 100 hour weeks. Uh, so I, uh, I I realized when I stepped back from that that uh, that that I'm not sure I'm fit for management anymore because uh, it it does it does take a toll, uh, and I'm uh, you know I uh, I like to go hard all the time uh, against goals, so. Um, I, I, I put a lot of, uh, I put a lot on myself. Yeah. You're your balls to the wall the whole time. <laughs> I know exactly. It's f- full firepower, full throttle. Um, throughout the period, were you taking cash off the table on any of your raises? Um, or were you really only able to take cash off the table in the final sale? I think this is something that I'm always interested in learning. I think entrepreneurs need to hear more about too, because 
you know, it becomes an all or nothing thing a lot of the time of where you're, you know, last person to get paid, last person to eat, last person to do everything because that is your fucking job as a founder is to secure the ship before anybody, before b- before you can even get in there. Um, did you, Were you able to take uh, any capital off on that second raise? No, they, all, all the uh, all the money that we ever raised um, went to funding the business, and uh, so there's no. And I've seen it different in different businesses now, but yeah, at Manitoba Harvest, all the dollars were going into uh, to growth. And uh, um, and you're right, you know, we uh, we ate last, or or you know, there was an increase in maybe uh, salary and comp, but uh, um, it, no liquidity until uh, until the actual yeah, which sales is usually business. negligible, yeah. <laughs> negligible anyways for what how much fuck I think. Even with salary and comp as founders, if you worked it out to an hourly, it would come out to a, a number that not many people would be interesting in pursuing. <laughs> and that's another big misconception that we're trying to uh, dispel is that, you know, that there's like, oh, the company's on fire, you know, I'm like we get calls all the time. I'm like, guys, the company loses a bunch of money every single month. We take no salary. And this road is going to be a decade before anything. So <laughs> if you're in it for the money, you're probably in the wrong zone. Uh, but you do have great outcomes available to you. Take me through. I throw something at the screen because it's too fucking crazy. 132 million. Take me through that. When does that even come? How does that come? Um was it was it the drive to the 45 like when you removed yourself from management and raised that final round was it like guys that's it now we're on the drive we're on the drive for the for to 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 sell this company was that everybody's motivation momentum to create a liquidity event for the investors or was this something out of left field no, you know, it, it, as soon as we when in in 2008, when we raised institutional investment from Avrio Capital, we knew that they were an institutional investor. There was a certain there was there was a there was a seven year life cycle to their investment that they were either going to have to sell their portion of the shares uh, that they own in the company or the company was going to need to be sold to, to to pay back their shareholders. And so it, it uh, we were planning, you know, a good year in advance of, of the time that we sold the business that uh, that we were looking for. Um, we were looking for the next sponsor that could support the uh, the business's mission. For me, it wasn't all about the money. It was still about our mission, but we knew that we had to return some capital to our, our institutional shareholders. And and we're because because you you stay on board that second time, and that's that's what's interesting because that that shows a lot to the drive was shoot from a process standpoint. We ran a formal auction process for for the business and trying to uncover every business that would be a potential fit to to partner with Manitoba Harvest and so we hired an investment banker uh and and then went out and and literally to hundreds and hundreds of companies uh um sent our presentation deck and and uh, and try to figure out who was interested in in uh, in in potentially acquiring the company or partnering with the company um and in the end uh you know at that time it was still very weird for um the large consumer packaged goods companies even though Manitoba Harvest was like a 50 million dollar business General Mills and Kellogg's and those kind of companies still thought that hemp was weird uh, and wasn't sure that they would want to associate with uh, that with hemp. is uh, so crazy to me because this what's the year now that this is happening in 2000 2014 2015 
Yeah. And so, you know, not that long ago, but uh, hemp was, if, well, you remember that hemp was only uh, uh, legalized in the U.S., uh, you know, two years ago, uh, formally in 2018. So in 2015, it was still this gray area where people weren't sure. They say, well, it's legal to be sold, but because farmers can't grow it in the U.S., uh, even though they can grow it in Canada, is it ever going to really be a thing in the U.S.? You know, that was, there was still this unknown there, even even a couple oh years ago. Oh my God! So he, okay, now uh, the light bulb just went off in my fucking head. This is why the rent. This is why it pays to be a renegade sometimes, and I, I want to really bring this. You end up forging into an industry super early. And end up really getting control of production, whereas you had no competitors in the U.S. handling crops like this, and you were and and you started to reap the benefits of actually being the person that controlled the full vertical of of this. So yes, it took your time, but I didn't realize that nobody in the U.S. was allowed growing at this point in time as well. Too, that's pretty fucking big for you. Yeah, yeah, we had the uh, you know there, there was call it those moats. You know there was there was definitely moats around the business that made it hard for competitors to compete with us at scale because they they couldn't get access to the amount of seed that they needed and 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 then didn't have the production facility to be able to make products. So it uh, by then it was. Uh, it was very known that, uh, that that competitors would have a hard time, and I think our our largest competitor was probably one tenth of our size, um, which made it very attractive. That's why you know people say, "Ooh, 132 million dollars." You know how many businesses in our industry sell for over 100 million dollars? Not that many, maybe a handful, maybe a couple handfuls, because you need that true competitive advantage at scale. Oh yeah, which Manitoba Harvest built. Uh, it just took. It- oh yeah, that's why. I mean, I, I I mean, for me, that's why I'm a fanboy sitting here saying that because it's not about. I'm not okay. Let's make it very fucking clear. I'm not here fanboying about. Ooh, Mike made money on a deal. I'm here fanboying about the fact that he scaled a fucking company that had 132 million of a value, and then did it again to almost 500, 419. That as a founder, those are championship rings. Those are each each hundred million at that point is a fucking ring. I don't give a I don't give a crap who you speak to. It's a ring, and it's something that very few people uh, get to obtain. So that's why I'm fanboying, not because Mike sold the company for a bunch of money, but because he achieved uh, a level of uh, let's call it uh, company value that very few people ever get to achieve. So okay, so let's get back to the sale. So who comes through, and how many interviews do you do? Oh, we, I mean, we, we, we started that auction process with hundreds of companies in the, in call it the top of the funnel, uh, the sale process funnel and, and, uh, and out the bottom were, uh, were a dozen or two, um, that got a lot more serious about the business. And then we had management meetings with each one of them where we had to sit down and for a full day session, uh, tell them all about every aspect of the business, our production, our customers, our consumers, our new products, our innovation. And, uh, and literally there was a hundred page presentation deck that we went through with each one of those companies. Holy crap. That must be freaking draining. And, and did, was it a super apparent of who, who you knew was the right fit right away? No, we were looking on our scorecard. We were looking for a number of things, right? And, and, uh, and, and as a, and we ultimately, um, 
decided that the that, that Compass Diversified Holdings, the private equity that uh, that ended up buying the majority of Manitoba Harvest, the deal with them was right because a couple things. One, they really believed in hemp and saw the future that that the U.S. was going to legalize hemp, and and this was just the start of things. And they were a billion dollar uh, fund, and so you know from a from an entrepreneur, we said I was like our mission. Uh, the mission still is day one: get get hemp foods into more people's fridges and into their mouths because it'll be better. You know, it's 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 it, it, we're going to make the world a healthier place that way. So to have a billion dollar sponsor that believes that the future is still to come and they're going to make investments more in the business, um, that that was the right pick. Outside of you know who was going to offer us just you know simply the most money wasn't wasn't the uh, uh, no wasn't the deciding factor. Yeah, and I think any 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 person that gets it gets that, and and so it's super important that it's never should be just about the money because. At the end of the day, you know, this was a private equity deal, right? So you were required. They 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 made it very clear that they were only interested in buying fifty one percent of the company, correct? Uh, it, well, it was a private equity deal, but they they um, not fifty one percent. They they bought eighty uh, percent of the company, uh, and so different private equity deals are 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 different. But usually, the private equity sponsor. Yeah, no, yeah, I, looks- I guess what I was trying to get at was more. It was required for them to have a controlling stake, but still required you guys to stay in place to, to carry out the mission or, or did they not require you to stay in place? Was that just a mutual thing? You know, they, they you know, they, uh, they, they were investing in the management team and the business. So they, they wanted us to, uh, cause it's fucking brilliant. I mean, I'm surprised not more people jumped at this. Like I'm sitting here, you're on the birth of legalization. You have a crew that clearly knows what the fuck they're doing. That's scaled a brilliant business, owns the vertical, owns the farms. Like, I, to me, this is a no brainer. You know, it's a, this is a slam dunk ready to go. (laughs) You know, I wish I was part of these meetings. Let's go. Um, Okay. 132 million. So now you're in it to win it. What's the next steps after that? You just, do you feel pressure when you take on that big investment to deliver now or is or did, did it really feel like business as usual and let's just continue doing what we're doing? No, the game changed from there for sure. Uh, there's a lot of pressure. I mean, you know, it's someone pays $132 million for something and, and you, you'd expect, you know, uh, performance and continued performance. So um, there was there was some challenges there with uh, with with, you know, we were a $50 million business with our eyes set on 100. Uh, but there was a lot of work to be able to, to make that happen. Did you get there? We got there, yeah. You know, we did get there, and that, that's ultimately what uh, you know. The the year that uh, that the business sold to to the strategic, uh, which was you know four years later, um, we had grown the business from fifty to about a hundred, and uh, and that's what that's what helped the value creation for the four hundred nineteen million. I like to think about it as a four hundred twenty million dollar deal myself, but uh, you know that's 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 what helped create that value was the growth and even more growth in front of that. What. I need to get into a little bit of your headspace as we come to wrapping up the show of the drive to survive and to get to a hundred. What went into that? Just if you can boil it down to some, some, some key points, was it clear the path? Was it something that, I mean, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm assuming you guys had a, a pretty good idea of what needed to get done, but the cadence at which it needed to get done seems to be pretty hardcore. Was there new plants that needed to be open? Did you like what? What was the magnitude of that second coming? Yeah, I, I think you know. There's, um, we were fortunate that our supply chain was already big enough to go from fifty to a hundred. 
so we had the farmer base. We had uh, we had the manufacturing. We had we and had now invested. is this farmer base uh, continuously all in Manitoba still? No, we had we had grown we had grown our production to Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta about seventy five thousand acres uh, with about one hundred and twenty five farmers. So amazing! It was, it was a pretty large farming operation that that at that time had. You know, a, a a good six team members working working with the uh, working with the farmers. This is why I love capitalism, and and I say just before you go is it, it, I know for all its shittiness that it has, just think about it. Before Manitoba Harvest existed, this fucking industry didn't even exist in Canada, and here you are <laughs> sitting with that farm operation. I mean, that is the beauty, ladies and gentlemen, of capitalism when it works out properly. Jobs get created, lands get used, shit happens, exports start happening, money's fucking made and put back into the economy. Oh, it's religion for me. Yeah, well, it's it's. Uh, so I, I think you know when you, you, your question around um, you know the path from fifty to a hundred, some of the same stuff. Like we knew that there was more distribution, there was more retail stores that we that we needed to be in and we deserved to be in because of our sales. There was there was new products that we were innovating that we could put into those channels, and then and then we knew we could still increase. I find it crazy that at fifty million in sales, you're still even having conversation complications convincing distribution channels to pick this up but i guess to your point because it was still so fresh the whole game it's yeah there was a lot of work to still be done so the the most challenging part nick is i realized that you know i i I wasn't the best uh person the entrepreneurial journey for me at 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 50 million dollars a business takes on a very um uh you know corporate tone to be success you know corporate tone to be successful you 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 need to you need to you need to grind it at a, at a, at a different level or, or a different approach on a day to day basis to to uh, to be successful. And so um, I, I felt that my skill set was going to be best brought to uh, to to our board of directors and to kind of strategy and oversight. And uh, and we hired a CEO that uh, that had big big business experience and and uh, and really could take the business to the next level. It's um, I know I'm listening to you say it, but I still would have bet on you as the horse as the CEO. Just know that. <laughs> <laughs> Still would have bet on you as the horse. I know it takes on a different climate, but you know my my utopic uh, dream for entrepreneurs is is sometimes to 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 to, to see it through. But it's a uh, it's it's a serious testament that that you even were able to get it to that level, and it's just amazing uh, what you accomplished. Where were you the day that you sold this company? Do you remember the second time? The second time. Yeah. Cause that's the, that's the, that, that in my opinion, if, correct me if I'm wrong, that is the finish line, right? Like you, are you no longer part of the board? Like you are fully removed from Manitoba harvest at this point, correct? Correct. Yeah. So, on, uh, yeah. So that's the real finish line for me then. That's why that's an yeah. important one for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the day that we announced the sale, um, I was on a flight, uh, from Winnipeg to Vancouver, uh, for CHFA, uh, Expo West. So for our trade show, our, 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 one of our big trade shows in Canada. So it was a, uh, which I love trade shows because we get to see all friends and, and stuff. And so it was a big moment on, on the announcement, which was a game changer and went right into the place where I could celebrate with, uh, with so many people that are close to me in the industry. Amazing. It was like, it was a magical lineup of, of timing, you know, compared to, uh, compared to other times that it could be. So from that point, and you don't have to say the amount, I, I mean, we can all use our fucking brains. I'm sure it was large. Um, from, from sale to deposit in your bank account, how long? 
Well, the way that those sales process go, uh, it, it uh, you know from the from the sign from the uh, from the announcement from the, of the closing, let's call it full closing of the deal. After yeah, w- w- th- this one was was fast. The first one took uh, f- about five months. Uh, uh, the second one took uh, it, it was under three weeks, so about twenty days, and uh, and the deal was closed. And deals closed mean the. The money's wired into the bank account, and then the deal's done. Uh, and uh, uh, you know that was another monumental day for for the business, and 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 also for me. But personally. this is the part that I'm gonna. I think we're gonna about to fuck everybody up with. There was probably a sense of sadness, no? Yeah, there's a huge grieving process, uh, which I. I I know that I can be a, uh, uh, you know, hopefully a coach or or or, uh, or or a friend to other entrepreneurs that'll go through it because I've seen some friends go through it, but until experiencing it myself, didn't know it's like the death of a of a, uh, I don't know about a death of a loved one, a death of a time, you know, uh, because you can't. It, it's I'm not involved with the business anymore. All I could do is uh, is watch the business from afar and and, uh, and 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 hopefully the core values that I brought into the business and taught the business uh, uh, stay true. Um, but I'm not I'm not involved on a day to day anymore. So there is a there's a full sadness and grieving process that happens. <laughs> Insane to hear it because I I, I listen I I can. I can appreciate everything you're saying. Um, wow, man, that that was a journey, and I'm so pumped that we were able to get it onto the actual show. Before we end off on everything, um, I like to, you know, what's that? What's that one piece that you could could leave to yourself? or to the person getting ready to embark on their journey, whatever that journey may be. But let's call it an entrepreneurial journey for the sake of the conversation, because this is a show about bringing ideas, uh, entrepreneurship and brands to life. What do you leave? And um, and this is someone that's gone through it. So I think this is super important. Everybody would want to hear it. Uh, what is that one piece? And it could be simple. It could be complex. You could take a minute to think about it. But yeah. Yeah, no, no, I, I it, you know, 100% follow your passion um, because entrepreneurship is all about passion in my books, which means two things. If you're trying to create a unique product or service, you need to understand the uniqueness in yourself first. Uh, and, and, and everyone is an individual. Uh, but if you, if you really identify that uniqueness in yourself, then you can bring that uniqueness into a business and, and through your entrepreneurship journey. And that, and all comes through your passion, you know, find out what you're passionate about if you don't know, and then take those passions and, and, and share them with the world. Hey, fucking men. Hey, fucking man. Where could the audience find you? Where do you spend? I know you're not a big social guy, but where do you spend your time and how could people, uh, uh, reach out, you know, the goal is not to flood you with people reaching out, but uh, at the end of the day, just where can people follow you and what you're on to next? And 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 I, you know, you're you're involved with a lot uh, of different companies. You're you. Mike is the type of person that I think if you show him that you're actually willing to win it and get in and play it, that he's willing to give you your time too. Um, but I mean. He's in the industry. He's he's a goat in the industry. He's a legend. Uh, everybody knows him, and and he's a great great person to follow. Um, so where could they follow you? Yeah, as long as uh, Jake doesn't start calling me a sneezer or something, I'll <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll I'll be okay with it. Uh, I uh, you know I, I I like to share on. Uh, 
I like to share on, uh, you know, the connect on LinkedIn is, is, is the easiest place to, uh, to find me. And, uh, and you're right. I like to help entrepreneurs that have found their passion and just need a little bit of, uh, help with a, with a hand up or a leg up. So, uh, you, you, you could find me on LinkedIn. Amazing. That is Mike Fada. Everybody, thanks for tuning in at Midday Squares Uncensored, the interview series. Mike Fada from Manitoba Harvest. You got it. You heard it. Have a great fucking day, Mike. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me.